Welcome to our class called How to Study the Bible Through Immersion Discipleship School. This is lesson number one we call the authority of scripture and it's really all about looking at what the Bible is and a little bit about where the Bible comes from so that we can get down to the foundation which will lend itself to studying this book and looking at it in greater and greater detail. Now it's no secret that the trend today is moving away from believing that the Bible is God's word but for hundreds and hundreds of years Christians have in fact believed that the Bible is God's word, that it's from God, that he's given it to us through human authors. But we find that belief um, always precedes practice. In other words, you practice what you believe. If you look at current statistics, about 50% of those who profess to be Christians don't consider the Bible to be God's word. That's half of the body of Christ right there don't believe that the Bible is God's word, don't find it important, think that it's you know, not really that necessary, that it's nice, it's full of poetry and these kinds of things, but it's not in fact from God. So that leaves 50% of professing Christians. And out of those 50%, uh, current statistics would say that approximately 40% out of 100%, 40% maybe read the Bible every week or randomly when they feel like it, and that's about their devotion level. And it says somewhere between 10 and 20% of the statistics that I've read suggest that devoted Christians read the Bible every day. So you can see that when people don't believe that the Bible's God's word, they don't read it at all. And when they believe that it's important, but not necessarily God's word, or some is and some isn't, they'll read it randomly. But people that do believe that it's God's word are gonna read it and study it every day because they believe that this book matters. And that's of course what we believe and that's what we're gonna teach and look at together in this lesson. Now an illustration is our third president of the United States, his name was Thomas Jefferson. And something that he believed was that the New Testament writers were unreliable. In fact, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he believed that they were unreliable sources. And so what he did, because he was known to be devoted to Jesus, but he was, he was actually a deist, he sat down with the gospels and he cut out the pieces of those four gospel narratives that he didn't agree with. He just cut them out, cut out whatever he didn't agree with. And then what was left over was this book called The Life and Teachings or Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And this was a little booklet that he, that he had that he compiled and put together. And I thought that's a really good illustration for what many people will do today. They'll look at the Bible, they'll cut out what they don't like, and they'll make up their own book. The scary thing about that is whenever we become the source, in other words, if we were to look at the Bible and say, I agree with this, I don't agree with that, we actually become the source. And in a sense, we become God's voice. So what we believe and what we don't believe and what we wanna follow and what we don't wanna follow, we become the source. And so we're not under anything, we're actually over it. And that's not, that's not a way to study the Bible. That's not a way to approach the Bible at all, as you're gonna hear me talk about more and more. And so I wanna make the following affirmation in this lesson so that you know right where we're coming from and, and what this will all be about. And that is this, we believe that the Bible consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament is the infallible word of God, verbally inspired by God and without error in the original manuscripts. We obviously understand that there have been translation and transmission over, over thousands of years, over long periods of time. So we're reading a translation of what were original manuscripts, but we believe in the original manuscripts, it is infallible and in fact from God. Now I think first we need to look at what is the Bible. And the word Bible literally means book, which is why we call it the Holy Bible or the Holy Book. The Bible is more than a book though, it's a library of books in fact. It's a collection of 66 books written by over 40 different authors over a period of 1500 years. 
and it's in three languages. It's in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. It contains historical narrative, hundreds of fulfilled and yet to be fulfilled prophecies, ancient poetry, and really incredibly important first century letters. Through all its diversity, it still contains a unity of subject, structure, and spirit with consistency of doctrinal and moral teaching throughout its entirety. It just weaves together from the beginning to the end. You'll find the message to be consistent. You'll find the content to weave together. And during the 300s, we originally called the Bible the canon of scripture. And the word canon means rule or measuring stick. That's how, how we consider the Bible. It's the measuring stick to our lives. It's the measuring rod that we use. And during the 300s and really past that time, these letters, these manuscripts were discovered over these different places in ancient times. And they were compiled together and one, they were decided upon which ones were authoritative and really from God as they collected these different pieces of manuscripts and copies of manuscripts. And men over a period of time were the scholarly people have decided on which ones were from God and which ones were in fact false or those that were unverified or without authority. And this book was compiled together, meaning the canon of scripture, which we have in our hands today. It's been pa passed down through the years, through transmission and translation, and it's to be revered. And, of and certainly we want it to be understood. The Old Testament has 1,189 chapters in its 39 books. These chapter divisions were added in the 1200s. There are 31,173 verses in the Old Testament, which were added around 1551. And these chapter and verses work like an address, like a street, like 21st Street and 39th Avenue. And these weren't added until either the 1200s and the 1500s. The New Testament is about one quarter of the Bible and has 27 books with 260 chapters and 7,959 uh, verses. This, this book we hold uh, to be very historically accurate, but there are three reasons why we believe that the Bible is reliable. That's a question. Why do we believe that the Bible is reliable? And primarily, it's three reasons. And the first one is the historical significance. I'm not sure if you've been to Israel or the Middle East, Turkey, or other places. These places that, we, that still exist today, they verify and validate through archaeological findings and digs these places that the Bible mentions. This isn't fictitious. You can go to these sites. You can walk where Jesus walked. You can go into the desert where the Israelites walked. These are real places. And so there's a historical significance that we find very, very important which is what the Bible over and over and over again leads us to. If you're a person of history, you'll find that even historians will validate the very same thing that we read about in Scripture with places and times and even mentions of names and those who were kings and so on. There's also, secondarily, a theological significance. The Bible tells us about God. It tells about the creation of man. It tells about God's dealings with man who we are as people, as human beings, who God is, how we relate to God, what God has done on our behalf in Jesus Christ, the plan of salvation. It shows us all of these things. Many of us, we're just wandering and we have no idea who we are, what we are before we come to know Jesus Christ. And the Bible reveals who God is through Jesus Christ and that God loves us and he's drawing us to himself. He didn't only create us, but he also is drawing us through Jesus Christ. It tells us about sin and that there's this big chasm between us and God. And so there's this theological significance throughout Scripture that, of course, we want to understand more 
and more. And the third reason why the Bible is reliable is because of a practical significance. A practical significance. The Bible just has a lot to say about the dealings that we have with one another, whether it's relationship or marriage. When you do a wedding ceremony, those scriptures come right out of the Bible that we use when we talk about love. There are different kinds of love, but the biblical love that we often rely on, most traditions rely on when they're doing a wedding type of ceremony are straight out of scripture. I use them when I officiate a wedding and many others do as well. When you look at our judicial system, or you look at the law and right and wrong, the fact that there is a moral standard and there is a right and wrong, there's a conscience deep within each person. Well, where does that come from? The Bible gives clarity and understanding to that. It's very practical in our use of relationship with one another and really how we go about life as human beings. And so these are three reasons that we hold to the reliability of the Bible. And certainly we could go further and even deeper All of these I don't have a lot of time to share on, but the remainder of the session, what I wanna do is I wanna talk about what the Bible says about itself. And I know that's usually not the way to verify and validate the reliability of a book of any kind, especially one that claims who God is and what we are and where we come from. But just assuming that we can jump right into that, I think it's important from this angle. C.S. Lewis put it like this when he talked about Jesus Christ. He said, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, and either you believe that he is the Son of God based on his claim, or you believe he's a liar or a lunatic. But there's really only three categories. Jesus said he was the Son of God. That's a claim. That's an authoritative claim. Either we believe, yes, he is the Son of God. We believe that he was a liar and he was seeking to deceive us. Or we believe he was crazy and he he had no idea who he was and he just claimed the highest level of authority that he possibly could. We've seen that in history before. And so some would say, well, Jesus, that's what he did, and that's, what he was, that's why he claimed what he did. But either way, we get to decide one of those three. And I think the scripture is the same way. I think if you were to look at the Bible with that same kind of reasoning, the Bible makes claims, authoritative claims, over and over again, that it is from God. That people who are writing say, God spoke to me. They say it over and over and over again. You, you, you can rarely find a book in the Bible that doesn't make that claim. In fact, what I want to do is I want to go through Scripture uh, book by book or categorically speaking, different, different sects of books, and I, and I want to show you that it makes authoritative claims. If it makes these authority, authoritative claims, then we have a decision to make. Either we believe that it is God's Word because it says it, or we believe that somehow somebody tried to deceive us, that it's lying, or it's, it's falsehood. Or we believe that just crazy people kind of drew it up somehow uh, for whatever their their reason would have been. But of course, I'm saying that I believe that the claims that it makes are true. I I believe that the claims, the authoritative claims are real. And I want to go through the Bible with you with that in mind to show you that this is in fact the case. Now, the first section of scripture I want to go through is what we call the Pentateuch. Sometimes we call it the Torah, the law, the five books of Moses. These are the first five books of the Bible, and they are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, these claim God's authoritative words throughout, all over the place. In fact, from the very beginning, it says, God said, let there be light. It's claiming that God spoke and things existed. 
in the book of Exodus, you find that when the Israelites were enslaved to Egypt and the Exodus meaning they came out, when they came out, Moses has a meeting with God in chapter 20 of Exodus. He has a meeting with God on Mount Sinai where God gives them the law. This is what we call the Ten Commandments. And during that time in Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, this is what it says. Then God spoke all these words, meaning the commandments, and he said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And he goes on and on to give the Ten Commandments that were written in stone. Moses was there having this encounter with God. These are serious authoritative claims. God spoke to a man. That man wrote those things down. We're reading those things now in our language today that God spoke to him and he wrote down. Now we get to choose. Do we believe that that's what happened or not? Of course, I believe that it is. Now we can also look at the next section of scripture, which is what we call the historical books. These are 12 books of primarily Israel's history. This is Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And these books make claims all throughout that God spoke to someone and they wrote it down, as we've shared before. And this is considered real history in, in many uh, traditions. This actually is history. And we can look at Joshua chapter 1, verse 1 for the first claim, and that is this. It says, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise and cross the Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. So here's God speaking to Joshua, just as God spoke to Moses. There's this transition of leadership. And within that, we see that God dealt with Moses one way. Now God is dealing with Joshua in the same way. The authoritative claims continue and exist. You go through these other books in the, in the historical, what we're calling the historical books, you'll go through and you'll continue to see that there were prophets and there were kings and there were seers and God would speak to them and they would record what God was said. And we have it recorded now in the Bible. The third section of scripture uh, that we're referring to is the wisdom literature. We also call these the poetic books. This is five books altogether, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. And I want you to take a look at what the early church thought about the Psalms, for example. Now, sometimes we can say, well, the Psalms were songs and this is just Israel's songbook or these, these kinds of things. It's true, there are 900 some odd verses to music or some kind of worship and song in the Psalms. And so a person could criticize that and say, well, they're just songs of Israel's history. Okay, fine, but look at how the early church saw the Psalms. This is what they thought. In Acts chapter four, verse 24, it says this. And when they heard this, these were the believers, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and they said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of, your, of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage? And why did the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Now this is a direct quote from Psalm 2. And that's what they said. They said, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, said this. 
The first century church, these were Jews, they believed that the Psalms were inspired, verbally inspired by God, and they were, it was spoken through the mouth of David, recorded, transmitted, translated, passed down from generation to generation. That was their view. Any other view that we would have would be new to them. So I find it very important that we see even the wisdom literature with the very same authoritative claim. Obviously, there are many messianic prophecies that we find come true in the life and ministry of Jesus. And that leads me to the fourth section, which we're calling the prophetic books. There are major prophets. There's a five, five major prophet books. And there are minor prophets, which is 12 books, 17 altogether. And it goes like this, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And these prophets make the clearest claims. In, in fact, they say, the word of the Lord came to me or God spoke to me. God gave dreams and visions. And these were prophecies for nations. These were prophecies for the nation of Israel. These were many 300 plus prophecies regarding the first coming of Jesus Christ. Think about that. That's not just uh, the origins of man or even the plan of salvation. This is 300 prophecies plus of the first coming of Jesus Christ. Some say there are even more about the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is yet to be fulfilled. So here you have prophetic literature, even ap apocalyptic literature about the end times and what's going to happen before Jesus returns. Some of these claims would be like you see in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, verse 4. It says this, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, or I set you apart. And I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah says, God spoke to me, and this is what he says. And this is over and over and over again. The fifth section of scripture is the gospel accounts. There are four accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And that would be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is just uh, obviously the place where we would say the words in red, the, the life and the ministry of Jesus, the sayings of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus through eyewitnesses. These are those accounts that have been written down. And I think it's important that people, when they say, well, let's only look at the words of Jesus. So there's some Christians today, they say, I'm a New Testament Christian, or I'm a, just a, the words in red Christian. I'm just a Jesus, uh, Jesus scripture Christian or whatever they say. But I think it's important that we look at that claim. To say something like that is kind of odd because Jesus continues to refer back to the Old Testament time and time again. In fact, the New Testament refers to the Old Testament 250 times. And when you just look at the gospel accounts, the four gospel narratives, you're going to see Jesus bring up Deuteronomy multiple, multiple times. And so if you're a New Testament Christian, what do you do when Jesus val verifies and validates the Old Testament? What, what do you do then? Well, you have to believe that Jesus' view, Jesus' view was that the Old Testament was God's word. That's why he brought it up as much as he did. So Jesus did not reject the law. Jesus only rejected corrupt interpretations of the law. In Luke chapter 1 verse 1, um, obviously the writer is Luke and he gives us a bit of his perspective concerning what he wrote. Luke chapter 1 verse 1 says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, 
It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that have been taught. Luke's concern here was that I have been told, these things have been passed down to me, the teachings, the life, the ministry of Jesus has been passed down to me by eyewitnesses. And I believe it's important for me, he's saying to this person he's writing to, to put together, compile this entire perspective, this account, so that you may know the exact truth, not some truth, not a little bit of truth, but the exact truth. And that's what we're trying to get down to. What is the truth? That's the question today. What is, what is truth or what is the truth? Well, this is the truth. This is why he wrote what he wrote. This is why the Gospel of Luke exists, to know the exact truth. And these were passed down by eyewitnesses, verified and validated. The sixth section of Scripture we want to refer to is the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a foundational recording of the birth and the beginning of the New Testament church. I actually look at the book of Acts as like a connector book. The book of Acts connects us back to the Old Testament. Many prophetic writings, many of the writings of the Old Testament brings up some of the Old Covenant, and it also highlights the life and the ministry of Jesus imparted to the apostles as they continue their ministry. And you'll see the Apostle Paul, and he wrote 13 letters after this, but he references Paul's three missionary journeys throughout the book of Acts, and it references the ministry of Peter and James and John. It, it talks about these different ones, and the, it really, even in a historical setting, it talks about who they were and what they did, and as these other books come after it, you'll see the book of Acts be like this connector from the past and this connector to the future of, of Scripture, and it's right there in the middle. Acts refers to the Old Testament many times, and Paul's letters it also gives us a lot of geography and circumstances. It's an accurate recording of the birth and the initial years of the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to read to you Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. And again, Luke wrote this. He continues from the gospel account of Luke that he also wrote. And he said this, The first account I composed, which was the book of Luke, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taking up to, taken up into heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now here, here he's saying, Jesus came after his resurrection, appeared to his apostles, his disciples, and even others, and he gave them many convincing proofs of the kingdom of God, and he wanted them to understand what was about to unfold. And so Luke here is writing, and he's basically giving that initial account and then unfolding the life and the ministry of the apostles as they were commissioned by Jesus. It's very important for us to understand how authoritative that, in fact, was. The seventh section of Scripture is what we call the letters of Paul or the epistles, the Pauline epistles. Paul wrote 13 epistles claiming authority from Jesus Christ, and that authority was affirmed by the apostles, the eyewitnesses of the Lord. This would be Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippi Philippians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Paul speaks authoritatively on behalf of the Lord at least two times. We believe that they're all authoritative, but he says it directly in 1st Thessalonians 4, chapter 4, verse 8, and 1st Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And there are other references that we could bring up. But Peter affirms 
uh, Paul's writings with other scriptures, uh, as with the other scriptures, I think it's important. What did the eyewitnesses of Jesus actually think of Paul's writings? Sometimes people today will write off Paul's writings and say, well, that's just Paul. But if the eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, the direct disciples of Jesus Christ, believed that Paul was writing scripture, then that's an incredible authoritative claim, not just from Paul's mouth, but also from the affirmation of the apostles and the eyewitnesses themselves. This is what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, given to him by the Lord, wrote to you, as also in all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, of course, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also with the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Now, I find that to be a very interesting verse because Peter is essentially saying, hey, listen, there are people who are distorting what Paul is saying. Paul received wisdom from God. This was given to him not just by someone else, but from God. He's writing these things out. He's writing scripture out. And those that are unstable, that are seeking to distort the ways of God and the word of God, they're distorting it for other people, false prophets and false teachers. But they do that with all the scriptures, just like they do with Paul, who also is writing scripture. That's essentially what he's saying. He's affirming that Paul was writing scripture. And Paul knew that, as I've mentioned in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, anybody that rejects what I'm saying to you is not just rejecting me, but rejecting the Lord. Now, I've never said that to anybody, but Paul said that in his writings, which is a very, very serious claim. The eighth section of scripture is the general letters or epistles. These are the authoritative letters from the eyewitnesses or the apostles. And we're talking about Hebrews. We don't know exactly who wrote Hebrews. Uh, there are many different ideas about that, but we're like looking at James and First and Second Peter and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and of course Jude. These books refer to the Old Testament many, many times. The words of Jesus even bring out more things. They, they refer to the words of Jesus, and they, they, it seems that they even share a few things that aren't written down in the narratives of the Gospels, and so it's important to really pay attention. In 2nd Peter chapter 1, this is a very important verse that we bring up when talking about the authority of Scripture, and this is what Peter said. 2nd uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 16, he said, for we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's establishing, I was there and I saw the power of God. I saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, for when, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. Father says over the Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. I mean, think about that. He said, no prophecy of scripture is a matter of anyone's own interpretation. That, that some claim that today, that the Bible is, 
not just misunderstood, but it's not from God. It's from some people's minds that they made this up and they wrote it and it's just been translated from generation to generation. But he's saying no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. And he goes on to saying that no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men were moved on by the Holy Spirit as they spoke from God. He's saying that this is verbally inspired by God. This is from God. That's the strongest of claims, strongest of claims. The last section of scripture that I'll refer to is what we call the book of Revelation. The apostle John claims a supernatural encounter with Jesus, as do many other books of the Bible. This is obvious authority. In this book, you'll read many, many things about the end times, what has taken place and what will take place. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, John goes on to talking about having an encounter with Jesus. And he had walked with Jesus for three years, three, three and a half years. He had walked with Jesus as Jesus walked the earth as a man. But when he has an encounter with the glorified, risen Christ, the Bible says he falls down on his face as though he was dead. And Jesus has to touch him, essentially, and say, do not be afraid, it is I. John, somehow in the glorified Christ, did not recognize Jesus the same way that he walked with Jesus for three to three and a half years. He ate dinner. He ate breakfast with Jesus. They certainly slept in the same place. And somehow he wasn't afraid like he was when he had an encounter with the glorified risen Christ. Meaning that who Jesus said he was, he truly is. And John records that very, very fact. The book of Revelation has yet to be, has many things that are yet to be true. They haven't come to pass yet. And so we read that with hope and expectation of that which is still to come. What I'm saying by all of this, I went through the Bible in just these bite-sized ways. I'm saying that the Bible continues to make an authoritative claim again and again and again. Either we believe it or we don't. It's the same way I said about C.S. Lewis and how he was reasoning with people. Jesus said he was the son of God. You believe that he is, you believe that he's not. Either he was a liar, a lunatic, or he in fact is the son of God. The Bible either is true or it's not. But it's not just a good book that claims that it's from God. That, that would be, uh, in my opinion, a lack of in intellectual integrity to say, well, it's a good book, uh, but I don't believe that it is what it says it is. Well, how can you believe that it's a good book if you believe that it says things about itself that aren't true? It, that's in a sense kind of lying. And so I'm just trying to hold us to that standard of intellectual integrity that if we're going to take the Bible seriously, if we're going to read it and consider it a good book, we need to consider it the kind of book that, it, it, that itself claims to be. The Bible is our authoritative guide. It is our manual. It is what God has given us to understand His plan of salvation, who He is, who we are, and that we could follow it. We're not over it. It's actually over us. Do we believe that the Bible has equal authority? Yes, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. Do we need to understand or rightly divide the word of truth? Yes, Paul said that. He absolutely made that claim that you need to rightly divide the word of truth. Some things that God said to the people of Israel in the old covenant, they don't apply to us in the new covenant as Jesus has come and fulfilled things. So we're going to talk about that over the next several lessons as we dive in deep to how, into how to study the Bible. That's really what we're going to get after. But we've got to first start on the foundation of what it is. If we don't know what it is, what's the importance of learning how to study it? Now, do we believe that the Bible has 
uh, equal authority in its implications towards us in 2017? No, because again, some of it has been fulfilled. Some of it is yet to be fulfilled. And we're going to rightly divide the word of truth. I want to make this affirmation before I close. The Bible, we believe that the Bible consisting of the 66 books of the Old and New Testament is the infallible word of God, verbally inspired by God and without error in the original manuscripts. Therefore, because we believe that the Bible is from God, who is the creator or author of our life, we believe that his word has unique authority over our life. And that's my prayer for you. My prayer for you, my prayer for myself, is that we would take the Bible seriously. That if we believe that the, the authority of Scripture, we believe that the Bible is the book that we follow. It's what God has spoken to us. It's what He wanted us to have so that we could know Him, that we could know about Him, and that we could follow Him. If that's true, then we want to be devoted to what the Bible teaches. We love God, therefore we love His Word. We love what He has said, and we need what He has said. It's not negotiable. It's something that we need. As I'm speaking to you today, I'm talking to you about the Bible having authority. I'm going to pray and I, I want to ask you to consider in your heart where you're at with not only knowing God and walking with Him, but where you're at with understanding His Word. Would you consider taking those steps as we journey on how to study the Bible and really looking at how to read it, how to study it, how to take it seriously? We consider that maybe you need an upgrade in your thinking as to what it is. This is God's Word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for everyone that is joining this class Lord, we love you. And because we love you, we love your word. You gave us your word for a very specific reason. And I ask, Lord, that everyone that participates in this class would not only learn methods on how to study the Bible, but we would all come to a place, even like an upgraded place in our hearts, that this is your word. And we would have a reverence in our heart for the Bible, that we would consider it an authority in our life, not just a good suggestion, but this is what you want us to know. And I pray, God, that you would give us, give us this reverence. Give us this place of honor in our mind and our heart. We pray that you would give us grace to see your word the way that you gave us your word, the way that you want us to see your word. I pray that you would bless and strengthen everyone that's watching this. And that even as we wake up in the morning, that we would be excited about understanding the Bible better. And as this class continues to grow and we look at all the different methods that we're, going to, that we're going to study. I pray, God, that you would impart to us a love for your word. So I thank you, Lord, for strengthening us. I thank you, Lord, for giving us the right perspective of your word and that you would bless each and every person that's a part of this class. Thank you, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. May God bless you. I'm looking forward to all the rest of the class.